This is TSC Now, a podcast by the Tuber Sclerosis Alliance. Hello, and welcome to the August episode of TSC Now. As always, I'm your host, Dan Klein. This month, we will be discussing the issue of returning back to school during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. This episode is a follow-up to a webinar led by our education parent mentors earlier this month on the rights parents have when making this decision for their children. I will post a link to the recording of that webinar in the show description, and I really encourage you to check it out. To better understand the process of making the decision of going back to school and what rights parents have, I spoke to two TS Alliance volunteers trained in educational advocacy so that they could support other parents. My first conversation is with Shannon Grandia, a mother to three kids with TSC, a spouse to an adult with TSC, and a volunteer as an adult regional coordinator and dependent adult transition resource coordinator in California. In addition to her role as a volunteer, she is also a first grade teacher in California. Here's my conversation with Shannon. All right, we're now joined by Shannon Grandia, a education parent mentor in California. Shannon, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. To start, maybe you can tell me a little bit about the start of your school year and the decisions that you made for your family. So we just recently started back up for two out of the three of our children. Our third child's still in summer school, so he's actually still in school. We have three children ranging. Our oldest is 19 in junior college. Our youngest is 13 in junior high. And then our middle child is 16, and he goes to a non-public for kids with severe disabilities. Technically, he would be starting his junior year. And so we, you know, we really pondered. We were asked the same questions as everybody else. You know, do we want to just go virtual only? Do we want the hybrid? Do we want to go in-class bottle? And for us, it was a really difficult decision, like everybody else. But both of our boys are really high risk. Both of them, if they were to get sick or if they were to get COVID-19, it could be very serious, very scary. And so that played a huge factor. Yet, being kids with disabilities and behavior issues, not going back to school is also another factor. Then with the behaviors, the regressions, and it was this balance of who do we trust our kids with? What do we feel is going to keep them the safest? And what's going to give them the best quality of life? And so we went back and forth, back and forth. For us, we chose to go in person. And a benefit to that is for California, we have to all start off on distance learning due to the numbers from our governor. And so we knew we'd be starting with distance only. So we had kind of that extended period of safety to kind of figure out if when the time does, they do return to class. If we're not comfortable with it, then we could call an IEP and change that choice. But for us, if we wanted our children to keep their teachers, we had to choose the in-person model. And that was a priority for us since we have a really good relationship with their teachers. So for us, we chose in-person. Once again, we're starting distance. It will go to hybrid before we ever get to that full-time in-person But thankfully, they are both with their teachers. They're with the staff that knows them and we trust. And um, we know it's working extremely hard to make this as easy and as smooth as possible. And is there a timeline for transitioning to hybrid or have they not determined that yet? No. Well, they did have a timeline, but the governor's orders kind of threw that out the window. Initially, they had hoped to be transitioning to hybrid by September, October, and that we'd be full-time by January. But the governor's orders are we have to have 14 consecutive days off the watch list for the county. And right now, both I teach in a different district that my kids go to. Both districts, the counties are, the numbers are extremely high. So there's no real future picture of when those numbers will drop to the point where we can return to school. How has it been going back to school all online as a teacher? It's been very difficult. (laughs) I will say, so, you know, we all had hopes that we'd be back in the classroom. We all anticipated we'd be back in the classroom. When we first went off in the spring, We really hoped it would be temporary. And many of us really held on to that hope that we knew it looked different when we came back in the fall, but we really hoped we'd be back in the fall. As our numbers continued to go up, it became a little more questionable and the district started going into hours and hours of negotiations and talk about what would that look for our students going back. You know, I teach in one district. My kids go to another district. My sister teaches in a different district. No two districts have the same plan. 
everybody's kind of all over the place because nobody knows what the right plan would be. And so the district that I teach in, you know, they were up into negotiations literally until the week before school started. We weren't given a plan as to what exactly happening because the districts have to take into account, first and foremost, the safety of the students, what the governor's orders are. They have to take into the classified and certificated unions and what's safety for the employees and what the expectations of the employees are as well as the kids and the parents and what what everybody wants. So there's a lot of factors. And so my admin found out two weeks prior to the first day of school. And our admin, what our district had to do is we had to provide the books and everything the kids would have had access to in the classroom, they had to have access to at home. So it wasn't just packets. It was their huge anthology reading books. It was their math books. It was their reproducible math books, their science books, their social studies. So it was a matter of our our admin team having to go into these classrooms and search out all these materials and gather them all up. At my school, we have close to a thousand students. We're the largest elementary in our district with three SDC classes. So we have a large number of SDC kids as well. And I went in two days to help. I went in to help with my first grade team to plan for our first graders and get our first grade materials in order. And the amount of work that was happening and the team of people that was working, it was custodians, librarians, our computer tech, our aides were coming in all in order to gather these materials for these kids. And then distribution was another four days of standing out in the heat with drive-by distribution, making sure the kids got their right technology, they got their materials, they got the supplies. Supplies also included crayons, pencils, you know, glue. It was the whole gamut. Anything that we had, we had to get home to these kiddos. Just that alone was exhausting. And then we went into teaching. (laughs) And, you know, I, I will say my husband and I were talking as a teacher, you always work hard, right? You always work extended hours. That's a given. You always work weekends. I literally haven't stopped working since we started planning three weeks ago. My kids have now, we've been in session. This is our second week from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed between 11 and 12 at night. I am working on school planning. I'm working on slideshows. I'm working on making videos for my parents log into technology. I'm working on how to better engage my students. I'm working on materials I can send home that they can easily do with me while we do our online classes. And then throwing in there the fact that those of the teachers that have kids of their own, you know, I'm pretty fortunate, but I still have to come home and do my work with Luke, who is expecting me to do his with him. So... It's been hard. I will say I'm hoping it continues to get easier. Um, I'm getting better at my slides and my presentations. I'm getting to know my students. And I will say I have the little ones, so they're on. My parents have been amazing and have been there with them. Our grandparents or aunts or older brothers, they've had somebody there to help support them, which is needed. And I have had a really good engagement with my kids, which is very exciting. I feel like I'm getting to know my kids So when I do get back in the classroom, I feel like they're going to know me and I'm going to know them. But it's been, I will say, you know, this is my 19th year teaching. I subbed for two years prior to that. So I've been in education for 21 years. And this is the, by far, these last couple of weeks have been worse than my first year as a teacher. Because, you know, we're learning so many new. I, I never heard of a Google Classroom before last spring. And now that's my Google Slides, Google Forms, all of our online resources for our programs. You know, as a first grade teacher, we're very hands-on. We don't do a lot of technology, a little bit, but not much. And so now I've, I've had this crash course on how to engage the kids with technology. And I've learned more. I was telling my husband, I think I've learned more this past two weeks teaching than I probably learned my whole career as far as the technology and different tools of engagement online, especially with our little ones. And a lot of that kind of rolls over to special ed. A lot of the tools we use for our younger students, my son's using in his class. So I've, another, I've worked really closely with his teacher. I've learned a lot, which has been very beneficial for me. But yeah, it's been a lot of work and uh, teachers are working very hard. I can validate for that. We appreciate all the work you're doing. And you talked about how there have been challenges just getting materials to kids, the incredible amount of time and energy teachers are preparing to do distance learning. What are some of the other challenges just executing a curriculum online? Technology is by far the biggest factor. You know, you got to teach the kids. 
to, to get on the Google Meets, turn on cameras, turn on mute, turn off mute, just the small legalities of being able to communicate when you have 20, 25 kids on the screen in front of you. But also, you know, connection, you know, we get kicked off constantly. For my school district, our requirement is for first grade, we have two 45 minute to an hour sessions a day. So during those 45 minutes, you know, my, my slides freeze up, my videos don't download. The kids are getting kicked off. We've, we've also had rolling blackouts, which has been a huge factor with a lot of our kids getting kicked off during class. And then for us with Google Classroom, you know, you present on one screen and you have to monitor the kids on another. So just having the technology of double monitors or two units so that you can log in twice and just figuring out how to manage it has been hard. But yeah, I, I think, you know, it's beyond our control. The technology, the kids having issues. I have two students who have yet to log in because they just, they don't have the connection. Mom works full time. The babysitter doesn't know how to. And it's not mom's fault. Mom's trying. It's not the kid's fault. The kids are, you know, they're first graders. So the challenge is figuring out how to still connect with those kids and not lose them during this time and not let that academic gap grow until we can get back in the classroom. So earlier you talked about how district to district plans are different for the district that your kids are in and for the district that you teach in. What was the process of building the plan? And how much input did you have both as a parent and a teacher? How did they gather your what you wanted? And how did they bring that all together? Both districts did a lot of surveys, right? We got did, we did surveys when this first started, basically. And the surveys are basically, do you want to be back in the classroom? Do you want distance only? Do you want a hybrid model? Like what kind, what are you looking at? It wasn't really how anything would be implemented. It was just kind of getting a picture of where they would need to put students. And I will say the districts did it very differently. So the district that I'm in, they didn't really ask that question going in because we knew we were going to be distance only to start. So everybody's just kind of distance only. And when we switch to that hybrid model, we're going to have to go in and ask parents, okay, are you okay returning to the classroom? Or do you want to stay distant? And then we'll have a little chaos trying to figure out classes and teachers at that point. My son's school district, they planned ahead. So they've already had to determine who the distance-only teachers are, who the classroom teachers will be. And so we didn't know which way was better, right? Like everybody's just kind of reaching. I'm kind of agreeing with my, my district better as far as asking later, simply because things are constantly changing. You know, if you'd asked me at the beginning of the summer, my feelings versus the end of the summer based on where the numbers were, my feelings were very different. If you asked me another two months when we are ready to go on that hybrid model, my feelings may be different. So I think parents, you know, were very vocal in their feelings. And I think that was a lot of the the difficulty in the planning. And once again, when you're talking public school system, you're not just talking teachers, you're talking support staff, custodians, cafeterias, tutor tech. You have this whole gamut of employees that are infected. And so looking at sheer number of employees, who's willing to go back into the classroom depending on where the numbers are. It was just a very difficult time, I think, for districts, teachers, parents alike, because there was so much uncertainty and there was no real direction. No one kind of knew what we should be doing. And so there wasn't much input, especially as a teacher. Obviously, we have the union to speak for us on behalf of the district. And the district's pushing one thing, the union's looking at another as far as safety of the teachers. And so there was those negotiations that came into play. And then obviously the the parents' voices were loud at board meetings and their thoughts and feelings on the situation. So I don't think there was never really a good solution to make everyone happy. And there's still lots of people that aren't happy. But I think the biggest understanding with parents was they thought that the start of the school year was going to look the same as spring. So in spring, when we got, we went off, there was no warning. It was literally like we were on spring break and we were told you're not going back to the classroom. So we had a week's notice only because we were on spring break. Other school districts weren't like they literally were in school one day and the next day they were told they had to do distance teaching. And so it was really at that point, just to wrap up the year, get through the year and support students how we could. Going into the fall, the the view is very different. We need to be rigorous. We need to teach. These kids need new grades. We need to fill gaps that were lost. And so I think parents had a trouble understanding that even though we're distance teaching, 
it's looking very different than it was in the spring. The expectation's different. We're online with the kids way more. And we have to hold the kids accountable, where in spring, we didn't have to hold the kids accountable. In spring, it was basically, we're putting it out there if you can do it. And if you can't, you know, we can't really control it. For the fall, it no, you're getting grades. You need to participate. You need to show up to the Google Meets. You need to do the assignments. You need to meet with your teacher. And teachers are working, you know, once again, I had a, I, I'm required to do 45 minutes online twice a day. I was online. I had two 30-minute sessions with kids despite my 45 minutes today. So we're still doing a lot more. We're doing more one-on-one, small group. And it's just a matter of finding that group. And so I think parents are starting to see that now that we're going back to school. But I think the reason many parents fought it so hard was they didn't want that spring distance, that learning again. And it was brutal. As a teacher, it was brutal. As a parent, it was brutal. I understand that. But I'm hoping people are starting to see that teachers are really, we are teaching. We are connecting a very different model for the fall. And we are really working towards getting those kiddos back in class. You talk about the rigor of this fall session versus in the spring where it was kind of sprung on you. And, you know, we had a webinar last week and one of the big topics was regression. What regression have you seen as a parent and as a teacher, how are you trying to make up that gap and address that regression from the spring? As a parent, we've seen a lot of regression, mostly behavior with our kids. Once again, with our six-year-old behaviors, his biggest obstacle, he's also autistic and always has severe behavior issues with aggression. And then with my younger one, my 13-year-old, Behavior wasn't always still with him. He's, he's, you know, severely delayed because of the epilepsy, but his behavior, once again, he's 13. So that plays a factor, not a great time to be in a pandemic. And so his behaviors have increasingly become worse. He's become way more anxious. He's always had OCD tendencies. Now they are through the roof and him and his brother clash constantly now because they're both kind of fighting the same control issues. And the fact that we're so close together all the time, because they're at risk, we've been very tight knit. And like if my daughter, who's 19, leaves to go somewhere, my 13-year-old, his anxiety is the roof, walks back through the door. And so we've had a lot of the behaviors that are our biggest regression. Thankfully, academically, we've been fortunate with me being a first grade teacher, both of them being about a first grade level. We've been able to really work with them. I've been fortunate because I know the curriculum of where they need to be, and I've been able to use some of those strategies. And I worked very closely with both their teachers over the summer. So our biggest regression has been behavior and not having it. Plus, we haven't had ABA since March. We haven't had those interventions. So we're filling it there. As a teacher, <laughs> filling the gap, you know, it, we're figuring it out as we go. I will say, like, for me personally, and once again, I'm regular ed with little ones, but I have been talking to our SDC teachers at our school because I'm teaching from my classroom even though I'm doing distance learning and there's a few others that are there. And we were talking about a little about the one-on-one and the interventions we're trying to support parents with. And I know for me, like I've done way more one-on-one sessions already with two weeks in. I've had that time to spend with some of my kiddos. I've seen the larger gaps and I'm really working to kind of figure out where they fall so that those kiddos are ready to move on and need the challenging support. I'm able to give them those resources and those that are falling behind, I'm able to kind of focus in on their gaps and get some small group intervention. And it's taking the parents working with me. The only way it'll be full parents work with teachers because the kids really, they can't do it independently, right? They're, they're young, don't know. And so even if it's not parents having somebody there, once again, a lot of it's older siblings, you know, during their break from class, they're helping younger siblings. Just having that support to work with us to fill the gap and be as creative as possible. We've sent home different, like I made different letter boards for word building. We sent home some magic Play-Doh so that they have, one, it gave them a good experience. And two, now they have some hands-on, something to keep their hands busy when the technology is lagging. They've been playing with their Play-Doh. You know, we've been trying to send home more tools. We've made more packets that we'll be sending home again next week. Things to engage kids at home so they're not just staring at a computer or they're just not pencil and paper, but they're still getting some of that creative outlet to keep them engaged and wanting to learn. I think the biggest obstacle is, you know, especially with young ones, and I think even with SDC kiddos, is you want your kids to want to learn, right? You want them to have that passion to, to learn new things and not get so frustrated. And it's that balance of making it fun and engaging 
plus still giving them the, the curriculum and filling the gaps that they need. So I just think everyone has to continue to think out of the box. You know, we're, we're learning as we go. Like I said, we've been in it a week and my team and I were just, we had a two-hour meeting yesterday talking about different ways we could better engage them and different things we could send home that the kids could use more independently so they're not relying on the parents so much and that we're able to support better. And yeah, I just think it depends on the school. So for example, for Jake's school, maybe he goes to um, a non-public for kids with severe disabilities. And they started having him come one-on-one for OT for a half hour. And once again, it fell on us. We have to drive him out there. The 45-minute drive both ways. But luckily, my husband's able to take him. And so just those baby steps of thinking outside the box, making sure it's a safe environment, keeping the numbers low. I think it's it's just that having that connection relationship with the schools and the teachers and, and just everybody having that trust and figuring out how to connect with the kids. One thing that you said during the webinar that I thought was very poignant and powerful was that, you know, when you transition back to going to school, that decision is really based on a foundation of trust, trusting your teachers and knowing that your teachers will take care of your kids. How do you, as a parent, establish the sort of open communication you need to build that trust And then again, in your other hat, how do you convey that message to parents that you will do everything you can to keep their kids safe? So as a parent, I think it's, and I think especially being in an SCC community with kids with severe disabilities, you're, you're always in constant communication with your, your teachers, right? You're always connecting with your OT, your PT, your speech, your admin, your schools. And I think just that constant open communication is key. So I know I have the emails for both of my kids' teachers, and I know I can email them at any time and that they will respond. And to me, that's where that, that trust is. I know if I ask them something and ask for help, that they're going to respond and tell me how they can help me or what I need to do. And that has been huge. I know for a fact that I trust them because I know that they will put my kids first. And, and I think that comes from being a teacher and the trust I want my, my parents to put in me. You know, I, I look at my students, every student that walks in my door, I look at it if it was my own child. I want to treat those kids as I would treat my own kids, right? I want to keep them as safe as I would keep my own kids safe. And so for building that rapport, teachers, you know, the good and bad with technology and all these Google Meets is, you know, I probably talked to parents more this last week and a half than I talked to them probably the first six months of school in a typical year, right? In a typical year, unless there's some major issue, right? Your, your parents drop the kids off and you send them their contact information, but there's usually not a great deal of communication early on in the year. And for now, it's, you know, I'm messaging my parents every single day and they know they can get a hold of me. We have our apps that they can communicate with. They have my emails. And I think building that trust and knowing that I will respond to them if they have an issue. And, and I will do everything I can to support them and their kids. And the good thing about the Google Meets and getting to see face-to-face is the parents can see me. You know, you can talk to somebody and know if they're sincere or not. You can you can see if, if they're really mean what they say. And that you can't hide that, especially when you're recording it and it's just there to watch over and over again, which is what we have doing on right now. And so I think building that rapport and just letting the parents know that I really am going to advocate for your kids. I mean, as a teacher, you know, we have intruder on campus drills. We have fire drills, we have earthquake drills. We have these drills where we're constantly told you put the kids first always, right? You put yourself in danger above the kids for everything. This is no different. The only difference is now I'm going to be extra cautious because I have two of my own kids at home that I also have to protect and not risk bringing something home to. So as far as the cleaning and the distancing and and whatever the protocol is, you know, I need to let my parents know that I will follow that protocol to a T as if they were my own kids because I can't risk taking anything home to my own kid. And in the same means, that's the trust I have in my kids' teachers. Yeah, I I just think it's, it's something you have to build, but it can be built quickly. It doesn't take much to build that trust if you're sincere and and that constant open communication. Finally, what is your biggest hope for the weeks ahead? You know, I just hope it gets the routine. 
you know, right now, with any start of a school year, you know, especially with little ones, I think even with SEC, anyone where it takes a little bit to get those routines and expectations into place. And so the start of the school year is always rough. You're teaching the kids how to sit, how to raise their hands, when to use the restroom, how to hold their supplies. And now we're having to teach that through the computer. Still same thing, right? We have to teach them to mute and unmute and when it's okay to talk and when it's okay to interrupt. And we're still teaching kindness and being respectful to your friends when you're on the computer. And all those same things apply. It's just a little added stress because it's digital. So my hope is that just like with the regular school year, you know, those things start to fall into place. The kids are starting to learn the expectations. They know me well enough to know what my expectations are. And I'm learning them so that I can better read them and support them. My hope is it continues to get smoother. We're learning how to plan better. We're learning the programs better. And so the stress that we're feeling right now and the constant planning and figuring it out. And I know parents are feeling the same way. Like parents need to get in the same routine. I need to get in the routine with my own kids. That that'll kind of ease and we can kind of catch our breath as we figure out what's going to come next. And that... By the time we get to the next step that that rapport is built so that it'll be an easy transition. Thank you for, you know, everything you're doing as a teacher, going above and beyond for your kids. And, you know, on top of that, being a resource for other parents of kids with TSC who are also making these tough decisions and just trying to navigate the shifting landscape. And thank you for talking to me and sharing your experience, because I think it helps shine a light on on what everyone's sort of going through and how everyone's feeling. Thank you for having me. (laughs) My thanks again to Shannon for providing her insights and perspective as both a parent and a teacher. She is truly a rock star and a reminder that teachers are working really hard to do what's best for their students. Next, I talked with Shelly Meisler, TS Alliance Regional Program Manager East and an education parent mentor in Pennsylvania. Here's my conversation with Shelly. So we're now joined by Shelly Meitzler, TS Alliance Regional Program Manager East and a education parent mentor for the TS Alliance. Shelly, thank you for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. So your kids are getting ready to go back to school next week. Can you briefly summarize what schooling will look like for them and how you're feeling about the start of the school year? Sure. So I have three children. So of course, we have three unique situations. My oldest will actually be 19 tomorrow. So she's in a private autistic school. So she goes to school about 30 minutes away from where we live currently. She has a smaller classroom. And so they will be able to practice all of the social distancing measures. They'll be wearing masks if they're able. Ashlyn is actually enjoying wearing a mask. And we've been working with her not only in home, but even on some community outings. And she's doing really well with it. She kind of likes it more so than I expected, which is great. So with her school, there was a really great comprehensive health and safety plan that I felt very comfortable with. You know, there's certainly going to be an adjustment period in terms of what your schedule looks like, you know, how the day starts for these kids. And some of the challenges and some of the logistics are still being worked out. With her private placement, she was provided with transportation. They would pick her up in a minivan. And because of COVID and and being able to social distance, that transportation has been suspended currently. So we're kind of waiting and working with the district to find out what that's going to look like. And as a parent, as I was filling out surveys and and information, you know, it it allowed me though to understand that this is clearly a unique situation for all of us, but it also allowed me to kind of reevaluate and remember that as a parent, I would be making some compromises to help with, you know, putting her back in school, which I felt was the, the best option for her. So I'm even ready to help in terms of transportation if the need arises just to ensure that she's able to get that socialization and that education in person. My middle daughter is typical, no TS. She is a sophomore going into her sophomore year. She's really excited and she is doing hybrid model. So she'll be going to school in person two days a week. And then the other three days will be at home synchronous and asynchronous learning. The entire school will come together on Wednesdays and do that synchronous learning. She's really excited. She misses her friends, her socialization. You know, we had a transition when we went into our freshman year and just as she was acclimating to all of those changes, of course, we were hit with a pandemic, things shut down. And so she was able to realign her responsibilities and priorities, but it certainly is a real life skill to be able to learn that balance and that responsibility that will now come with that hybrid model of some in-person instruction, but that accountability and working at home independently on her assignments. 
And then my little guy is going into first grade and he will be starting next week. They're doing a staggered start just to give the kids some time to acclimate to the new setting. Everything again will be social distancing. They'll be wearing masks. The classrooms are set up differently. Things like lunch will, will take place in the classrooms. So really keeping more of that cohort type model where they're keeping the kids in one place and bringing everything to them to keep them safe. And so they're not traveling unnecessarily through the school. They'll be incorporating a lot of break times, outside time to get those masks off, but also working with the kids on wearing their masks. But again, all of my kids have been compliant with wearing masks and understand we've been working with all of them based on their abilities and where they are about food hygiene, keeping safe. And so as a parent, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think that we have to move forward and and see what works and what doesn't work. I, again, commend my district. The health and safety plan has been commended. It's it's an in-depth plan. They've thought of everything and, and we for sure will certainly have some setbacks. But I think I feel very comfortable that we're moving in the right direction to figure out what's going to work best for all of us to keep us safe, but to keep the kids in school socializing and getting that education. And so I'm excited. I'm excited that we're starting to kind of, you know, redefine what that quote unquote new normal looks like as we're still in the pandemic. And we in our our specific area are fortunate that we're not having a huge outbreak. So from a standpoint of the virus in my local area, it's not a predominant hotspot. We're not seeing a lot of spikes in cases. So I feel very comfortable in that regard. And as well as, you know, my kids and their immune systems, they are very healthy. We're very fortunate that despite being on some of those immunocompromising medications, everybody is very healthy. We take vitamins, supplements and things like that. So I feel with all of that compounded really was where my family was able to make that decision that we felt was in the best interest of our kids for their socialization, you know, their medical, keeping them safe to the best of our ability and knowing that, you know, we have everything in place to keep them as safe as possible as we make this transition back to school. When and how did you learn about your school district's decision about what to do with school in the fall? And as a parent, did you get a chance to give feedback or provide any insights into that decision-making process? I did. My school, very similar, I think, to how other schools did it, but they really started working on these health and safety plans, I think, in like the May-June timeframe. You know, once we were knowing that our school year was going to end virtually, they really started to plan ahead and they set up all kinds of working groups, focus groups, task groups. They did a great job of pulling in a lot of community feedback. So they worked, of course, with all of their administrators, with parents, with medical professionals, nurses, doctors in our community. So I I think they did a very good job of, of really having a diverse group of people to think through all of the different situations. And lots of surveys came out and families were encouraged. And I'm a huge proponent of advocating for your kids, no matter what the situation is. And so I participated in all the surveys with all of my kids because some of those surveys came from different places. And I think it's important to understand. And, and some people I think are struggling with this too. And a, a lot of people, there is going to be hard decisions that needed to be made. Our school board, had their meeting on July 20th, where they really put forth what their health and safety plan was, prefacing that, of course, it was ongoing, fluid, and could certainly change. But it was really there that we started to understand how that plan was coming together and what it would look like. And they've done a fantastic job keeping us up to date, you know, and, and knowing that as we're getting ready to go into that week next week, there's still some logistics that are being worked on, but they've been great with communication. Everyone, I think, has been very understanding. You're allowed to ask questions. You're reaching out. The, the staff is, I've, I've already gotten emails from Mason's teachers, you know, asking if I had questions. So I think it's been a very open dialogue. And I always encourage that, you know, participate as much as you can providing that feedback. And if you ever have questions, and, and as we kind of move into to whatever form of learning your family has decided. Keep that dialogue and those questions going with your school. I think it's important. And that's where that open line of communication really helps make sure that everyone's on the same page. Last week, we had a webinar with some of our other education parent mentors talking about going back to school. And I think one of the themes that really came out of that discussion was through those open lines of communication and back and forth, it's really about establishing trust with the teachers and with the district to know that they have your kids' interests at heart. Would you say that 
having that open communication has helped you build that trust with the people you're sending your kids to school with? Yeah, I think it's absolutely important. And I think Ashlyn's going to be, she's 19. So I've been working closely with teachers and, you know, her team since the beginning. So it's really the only way I ever knew. <laughs> but I, again, encourage that, that open dialogue. I think that when you have those conversations, and, and I understood where the teachers stood personally, the decisions they were struggling with. I tried to really look at it from all of the angles. I looked at it as a parent and what's in the best need of, of my children. And, you know, there are certain things that they are required to receive in, you know, the educational setting. But I also looked at it from the other side of, you know, this is a huge undertaking for schools. It's not easy. There is no one answer, just like there's no one answer for our families and our community. It works the same with the districts. There's staffing, there's the concerns for your staff, for your faculty, for your students. But it is, it, it's absolutely the trust that I've built with the school, with the people inside of that school, knowing that everyone does truly want what's best for all of our kids. And we want to do it safely. And for some districts, we have the ability to do it. Maybe it's more staffing and, and you know, more of a rigorous health and safety plan that's in place. And I know some schools have deferred for virtual for that first quarter or marking period. And, and that's to allow some additional time to put the, the proper supports and safety plans in place to make sure you have staffing and things like that. And I think that when you just have a clear understanding and a clear knowledge of what's going on in all of the intricacies that go into this, it just makes it, you know, I'm an understanding parent, my kids and, and their needs are obviously what always come first to me. But I feel that I can make that collaborative decision and have open dialect with people. I know that we're going to have different opinions, but I respect everyone's opinion. And I feel that my opinion as well is respected. And I think that now more than ever, that trust, that communication and that dialogue with your schools is going to be so important moving forward because we all have experienced some form of regression. We're all transitioning into something new that's uncertain, but it's all going to look really different. And when you keep that conversation going, that helps to dissipate your fears as that dialect is open. And we remember that we're all feeling those things. And so as we come together, I think collectively that that helps us kind of work through those challenges and forward. So after your district had their plan in place, what was the process for you and your family for making the decisions about what you wanted to do with your kids? You know, who was involved? What resources did you seek to make those decisions? My husband and I certainly had those conversations first to, you know, understand. You first really have to know is, is you know, your own family in that same, are you guys on the same page? Because, you know, we all have different opinions. So we really started first internally. And, and while I think that adults should make adult decisions, I certainly wanted to get some of the input from the kids if they were able. Ash can't really give us input like that, but my middle daughter can and Mason can as well. So McKenna really, you know, wanted to be back and again, feeling safe with their health and safety plan that masks are required. The social distancing, I felt again, as you know, a 15 year old sophomore, it's that socialization. We were pretty isolated in terms of, you know, what we were doing as a family to be safe because we're looking out for the well-being of everyone. So we had those conversations first internally. And then again, looking at where our kids are medically with two sclerosis, it can certainly be varying. Some days are different. From that perspective, I feel like from a medical stability standpoint, we're in a really good place. Everyone, even on immunocompromising medications, are doing really well, healthy immune systems. So that was a huge part of it too. I think that Ash had more side effects and, and was more susceptible to getting sick. That certainly would have been a, a different conversation and, and, and potentially a different decision. I think for us, what really wound up being an outweighing factor though is there mental health, their social well-being, their emotional well-being, their their mental health. And of course, families living with TSC recognize and certainly have their own struggles with our TSC-associated neuropsychiatric disorders, TAN. And a lot of us saw that those behaviors impacted and certainly compounded. And when you lose therapies and related services and you're not in school and these kids weren't, you know, going and having those structured days, all of that can really compound at home. And so that can really affect the well-being of your family as a whole. So we looked at that to really looking at the resources of, of our doctors and our community and saying, we're still trying to understand this virus. We don't have enough consistent data yet to really know it. It resembles TS and that it manifests in different ways. And I think that the position on that from the medical perspective is it's an individualized decision based on where you are, with what your family's health issues look like. So factoring in having some great visits with our TSC docs recently and knowing that working with the school and trusting that their health and safety plan was in place and 
understand that those protections exist to keep us as safe as possible was really all of those factors that went into making that decision. And that's not to say that, again, if, if our state would backslide, if we would see a surge in cases, that that all could change and we could certainly go virtual. But we felt it was best to, to move forward with this decision with where we are. One of the big themes in the presentation last week was the idea of regression. And, and you were just talking, too, about how in addition to regression, there's that lack of socialization. How did that sort of manifest in your family, you know, starting at the end of last year and then through the summer? You know, initially it was, I think, you know, we all, we, we, we closed down schools, you know, we, a lot of our states closed down. And so we, you know, we understood we were kind of sheltering in place and, and the, you know, thought was flatten the curve. So as not to overwhelm our medical system. And so, you know, the first couple of weeks that you were just surviving, you know, you were like, this is short term, you know, we're just going to do what we're going to do to get through this. Both of my kids have behavioral services and and the two agencies handled it hit very differently. One shut down and said, we're not essential. We won't be providing services. Ashlyn being a more severe case was one of the higher needs clients for her wraparound program. So her in-person services never stopped. We work though with a really great team and that trust and open dialogue comes into play as well in that facet where they were really only seeing her in person. She, they understand that, you know, she has TS and that, you know, she is considered more of that high risk category. And so because she was one of their greatest needs clients, her in-person services remain. So for her, it was still a challenge. We were having, we were in a really, again, not a a good place with behaviors pre-COVID. So they didn't get any better during that isolation. In fact, there was points where it got really, got really bad. And there was, you know, things being broken and lots of self-injurious behaviors and, and really moments where I thought I was going to have to pick up the phone and call 911, even during a pandemic. But, you know, we were able to stay in contact with her doctors and things and, and just kept working day in and day out with her support services. But I had two other people in my home that were not our direct family. And that's that risk benefit, you know, that we had to weigh as a family and say the risk of the harm she would do to herself if she was here without that support was greater than the risk of the exposure at that point because we were all taking those precautions and I had trust and and communication that they were staying as isolated as possible to keep my family safe. For Mason, it was initially it, the services kind of got put on hold. And as I was kind of focusing on Ashlyn and trying to stabilize her and keep her safe, that really took that focus and priority away. A couple, like probably six weeks into it, you know, I really noticed that he was obviously struggling in different ways and his agency was then able to provide virtual sessions. So he developmentally is on track. So he's able to log into a computer. He's actually pretty good at it. Logs right into a Zoom. He I memorizes his meeting ID and his passcode and can sign right on and interact with his behavior support staff. So he was able to then maintain those services. But what I'm finding now months later is that while it's great and he can do that, he's really my kiddo regressing the most socially in that we started, you know, seeing regression with potty training and eloping the house and just doing things that he didn't do before. And as much as he wants to be at home, he needs that interaction and he's not interacting with his peers. He's not seeing any of the kids that he saw. And so he's home with a 15 year old sister and a 19 year old sister who has their own behavior team. And I almost think he began to be resentful. Like, why does Ashlyn's people still come see her and my people aren't seeing me? So that in person, I think for him as well, and even from a learning perspective, he's hands-on kiddo and I saw him struggling educationally and, and even regressing that way. But his behavior and demeanor really were compounded to the point where we knew for him indefinitely, he was probably our easiest kiddo to make the decision that in person was the way we were going because that regression has just become so clear that if he needs to be with with people his own age. And and there's something to be said. I'm working from home and I work remotely outside of the pandemic because of my location, but my attention has to be on my work. And so I'm being pulled as a parent in all of these directions. And you feel bad because everyone needs something different. And the only way to meet all of those needs is, is absolutely that outside support. And that's the way my family is able to do what we do. It's I rely so heavily on those outside supports. And so to have them suspended or cut off is really hard. And and, and I, I respect that. But we're even still to the point where Mason's team has chosen for now not to return to in school with him. And so while I respect that, we are trying to, you know, figure out how do we make this work, though, to still be meeting the needs of our our kiddo, because that still has 
to be my my top focus. So it, it's it's a balancing act, and it's but it's hard. And I remain really grateful though because I know many families didn't have any supports and services, and I know how detrimental they are to keeping your family going day to day. So. One of the other things covered in the presentation is how the law requires that kiddos with disabilities be guaranteed free and appropriate public education, which is enforced through the development of IEPs. How has the IEP process changed during the pandemic? So the process has changed in that, you know, you used to have face-to-face meetings. And so those face-to-face meetings currently are now taking place on different forms of Zoom. I had an IEP meeting at the end of May on a Zoom call. For some, they may be calling in, but you're using these different types of technology so that you're still meeting. The IEP process itself, I think, is, it again, it's, it's an individualized plan specifically for your kid. And even though we are in a pandemic, nothing has changed with that federal law. And so our kiddos are still required to receive that free, appropriate public education. And I think, you know, we've been really understanding. Again, we were in that crisis mode, you know, in the springtime, but we've seen a lot of these schools. And that expectation is that they've been working through some of those challenges. And, you know, it's going to look different, but we have to be creative and we have to think outside of the box. And knowing that, especially people in our community with those intellectual disabilities, we're Regression is is you know inevitable, and so we need to get creative with some of the ways that they're still being provided their services, so that we can continue to make progress on our IEP goals. So I think it's changed in that the how the IEP meetings are taking place, but the conversation that you're having with your IEP team, and even you know what services you may need right now, may look very different than what they looked like a couple months ago in person. But what I would encourage people to do, regardless, is there's questions or or things aren't being followed, call those IEP meetings, have those conversations, make sure that you're collecting the data, that you're keeping an open dialogue and you're communicating through email so that you're creating that log of communication and detail with them. But be honest and open with what your needs are, you know, and, and your situation. It's There are families that they can't have somebody at home helping with virtual learning and things like that. And I think that you need to be open and honest in that dialogue and, and asking for help and working collaboratively to think outside side of the box to make sure that you're being provided the support that your your kiddo with that IEP needs. You talked about how as part of that open communication, it's important to establish a paper trail and to document discussions that happen. Can you talk about the importance of a paper trail, especially for families who may be at odds with their district? And, you know, how do you go about starting that paper trail? So right now, with everything being done electronically, email is, I would say, your preferred form of communication. I mean, you can still send things by certified mail, but that is for sure the slowest method. And with a lot of people not in person, the the timeliness of that being received would would probably not even be met within those timeframes. So email communication is is the, the easiest way. It has a track of what your conversation is with the school. Anything that you have, any, you know, even if you have a phone conversation with someone from your school, it's really important that you hang up the phone and you send an email to the person you just had that conversation with and just say, I'd like to summarize what we just talked about. I want to make sure that I understand you know, exactly what we talked about, what our next steps are, how we're both going to be following through. It, it provides that accountability because you have this in writing and then something doesn't take place a couple months from now. You have that, that documentation to validate what, what happened, what was supposed to take place, those expectations, whether it be outlined in an IEP, if you were amending something. And if you get to a point that there is no compromise with the school, there they're not following through, they're not following the IEP, they're not implementing the changes in that. When you file a due process, you're going to need that paper trail. So it's always really important to have that. It shows all of the the documentation that took place in the conversations and, and what you talked about specifically, and it holds people accountable. My teacher said this, X, Y, and Z, X, Y, and Z didn't happen. Here's the email communication that highlighted what was supposed to take place and didn't take place. And I think, you know, again, my oldest is 19. I've kept a paper trail of every Thing. People have good intentions. And that's not to say that sometimes, you know, we're busy. Uh, we we may just misunderstand a conversation. You have a, a phone call with someone, they hang up, they get another phone call, they get distracted and then lost their train of thought. By having that email trail, you've created that where it's again, holding people accountable. And we have some great resources on our website of really how to keep that paper 
Summer Trail and kind of gives you a guide of the different types of letters based on what exactly you're talking about, whether it be calling an IEP meeting, any kind of an evaluation or anything else that's going on with your school. We really have a sample template to help get you started with that. Finally, what are the biggest concerns you're hearing from parents and and what's the one piece of advice you're giving them as they navigate this process for themselves? I think it's uncertain, right? None of us understand what tomorrow will bring. And, you know, I know that this, I see a therapist, I'm very open and honest about that. And I just had a session the other day and I'm like, you know, it's the overall fear of the pandemic is not really what worries me. We in this community, you're very conditioned and used to your expectations change. Things can change very quickly. You know, we're used to that. These types of situations are really how many of us live day to day. I think that, you know, we all though are feeling some sort of uncertainty. I think we question if we're making the right choices. And I think my one piece of advice to anyone is, you know, reach out. There is, you know, something to be said, obviously, for that support. We've all seen this in this community. I I still log on and ask a question if I'm changing a medication, if I'm going through something with one of my kiddos, just need that second thought. There's always someone that's going through that and getting that support from the community and just reminding yourselves that, you know, we're not alone. This looks really different and it's going to look different for a long time. And I think the more that we have open conversations and share our experiences and, and share our fears. I think when you talk openly about what your fears are, it helps take away the power of that fear as we move forward to make progress. I think that the next couple of months are going to be intense. It's going to be a learning experience. I think we're going to, like in our community, we're going to feel some, you know, we're going to celebrate some some champions, some, you know, steps forward. And, you know, we're going to reassess when we take a couple steps back. And I think realizing and setting that expectation that we're for sure going to have some backslide through all of this. It's, it's an ever-changing situation. And there are so many outside factors outside of our control. But stay in contact with your team, ask questions, reach out for support. The TS Alliance is always here to help. We have tons of support online, different ways to connect with other parents, teachers, educators, specialists in the field. There's support out there for everyone. Keep that dialogue open and be easy on yourself. These are not easy decisions that we're making and we're all doing the best that we can given the information we have at hand and and that may change and we may reassess those situations, but know that you have support and that we're all in this and we're here to support and help each other as, as we navigate these uncharted waters. Well, thank you for that amazing advice and for all of the work you do to support families in the in the TSC community. And thank you for sharing your own journey and your fa- how your family went about making those tough decisions. I think that provides an example of how other families could approach making this decision that is very personal and, and, and it's a tough decision. So, and thank you for taking time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much. As always, love your podcast. Thank you for all you do. We appreciate it. My thanks again to Shelly for sharing her perspective and for the work she does every day to support individuals and families with TSC. While the decision about school is a personal and tough one, and every school district is different, know that the TS Alliance is here to support you and help you advocate for your child. If you are having school issues, we encourage you to connect with Dina Hook, Vice President of Support Services. You can reach her at dhook at tsalliance.org. And she can connect you to one of our trained and dedicated education parent mentors who know what you are going through and are here to help. And of course, you can always contact the TS Alliance directly. Send us an email at info at tsalliance.org or call us at 800-225-6872. Finally, I'd like to thank everyone who came out for the Step Forward to Cure TSC National Virtual Walk, Run, Ride last weekend. Together, we have raised over $620,000 to date, and that number is still climbing. I would also like to thank our sponsors who helped make this incredible event possible. Greenwich Biosciences, Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals, Novartis, UCB, Upshur Smith, Levanova, Mass Mutual, Norellis, Stanford Children's Health, Variety, the Children's Charity of Southern California. You can see all the videos from the weekend and support the Walk Run Ride by going to stepforwardtocuretsc.org. That'll do it for this episode of TSC Now. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. 
You can find all our episodes at tsalliance.org slash tscnow. Thanks for listening.